There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 4th of May 2010. Newcomers should look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and folk who listen regularly too and bookmark all the sites I have up there, the alternative sites, because sometimes the com sites will let me down too many folk going at once or else I simply can't upload. The, I have trouble uploading sometimes to the com uh, they don't always increase automatically your, your um, disk space, although they're supposed to. So if you bookmark the other sites, you can always get the latest audios for download, the latest shows. And when you're there, too, look into alanwattsentinel.eu. That's one of the major sites in Europe. It has all the same audios for download, and it has uh, transcripts of an awful lot of the talks I've given over the years. And you can choose from the various languages of Europe. Now, all the other sites also have transcripts, but in English only. But the Sentinel site has uh, a variety of languages from Europe to choose from. And also remember, too, that you are the audience that keep me going. You can buy the books I have for sale, the CDs, the discs. I don't ask for sponsors. I don't ask for advertisers to back me up. So I'm pretty well a loner out here. And uh, that way, I have a free hand to talk about certain things which they can't really touch on or give honest opinions about certain things without having to worry about a corporate sponsor or upsetting them. The ads you hear on this show uh, are paid by advertisers directly to RBN for the airtime and for their staff and equipment and for the broadcast of the show, and it helps pay their bills, but you have to help pay mine. And you can do so by buying the things I have for sale. Now, remember, from the U.S. to Canada, you can use personal check to Canada. You can also use an an international postal money order from your post office. Uh, PayPal to donate or to purchase. If you want to purchase, send a donation through PayPal and a separate email with your name and address and your order. You can also use Western Union or MoneyGram or cash. Some folk do send cash. And for the rest of the world, it's the same thing. You can use uh, PayPal for donations or for purchasing, uh, Western Union, MoneyGram, or cash. And that will get through. The post office isn't that bad so far, but they're cutting back badly in the U.S., I understand, closing a lot of the post offices down. And for those who get the disc burned and passed to them, who don't use computers, they play them on CD players, you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt. Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. Postal code is P for Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. And that gets that out the way because this show tends to be a little different at times. I go into uh, perception and reality. Uh, Most folk think they're living in it simply because everyone else can agree with them on most topics. In fact, you all talk about the same topics, never realizing that most of them are put out there for you you all to talk about. That's the the creation of a reality for other people. 
they create trends of topics and everything else. And people Twitter and tweets and chat about them like little birdies. But they never realize they're being manipulated, their minds are being manipulated. And also, the time you could be spending on finding out what's really going on is gone to waste. You're simply rehashing stuff that's already hashed out for you to talk about and Twitter about and tweet about and all of that kind of stuff. Reality is vastly different. It's been different for a, an awful long time. If you go back into the Middle Ages uh, to get good um, writings on how millions of peasants were controlled by religion and how they used religion to give them the only reality they knew since they were utterly illiterate, at least most of them. Back with more after these messages. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about reality and perceptions and how even things we take for granted today, as we take for granted mainly because everyone else is taking the same things for granted. That's your peer group, you might say. And, of course, we live in a new type of peer group making where they give you total strangers and various people's names across the world to Twitter with and chat with and tweet with. And uh, you all have pretty well much the same opinions about the topics that are given out to you. Everyone's heard about the same topics because the trends are created for everyone at the same time. And that stops us really from thinking beyond the walls uh, that's been created around us uh, to get into the next room, uh, the rooms where the guys that make all the trends uh, happen to live and uh, commu- uh, communicate with each other and decide on these trends that you're all going to chat about and how you're going to think about them, how you're even going to feel about them. And they also keep their pulse on the people who are doing the tweeting and the chatting Constantly, constantly, I've got so much data on this from the big players, IBM and all these guys, and how they're projecting the whole future and basing their business plans on it. Actually, what they do is they base their business plans at that level because it's all part of the military world industrial complex, and they they create the future that you're all going into. And that's why they gave you all of this technology to monitor you in a totally controlled and what they call themselves a completely interdependent world society. Getting back to the Middle Ages, though, when you, if you were a peasant back then, you didn't have television, you didn't have radio, everything was word of mouth, and you would know as much as an ex-peasant as you worked on the, the fields for the lords. And uh, you didn't have to pay taxes in those days, they just took most of the stuff that you grew and left you with a little bit of fodder for yourself, if you were lucky. But um, things are improved now, they've got a better, better system, they call it money. And uh, they take 60% of your, your the stuff back in taxes. They used to leave the peasant 40% of his crops. And so that uh, hasn't really changed that much when you think about it. But money's more efficient. And we now live in a monetary system. But the peasant really uh, would talk to his wife uh, uh, in the evenings. And all he would chat about is what's happening on the farm, the different animals, maybe the children, and what they'd heard at the... the uh, church on Sunday and they did the chat and asked themselves what this particular sermon meant and all the rest of it. That was it. That was their entertainment and their intrigue as well at the same time and their mystery. And of course, as time went on, we had to get basic educations because all the peasants were moved off the land into the, the new cities, the slum cities. 
the red brick cities, as they were called, uh, which were constructed for them to work in the factories for the big boys who ran the money systems. They kind of taken over from the old feudal system. And we've really emerged out of that post-industrial, and that uh, industrial system has been moved to China for the meantime. We're just a service economy now. However, we're going through the biggest transformation uh, since they moved the peasants into the cities uh, in the Industrial Revolution. The biggest transformation now is into the global society, but not any old global society. It's a preordained, preplanned society where every facet of it is worked down to, the, to the, the, the minutest detail. Nothing is left to chance. And when you look through the big reports for the insiders, for the big companies like IBM, and as I say, they're definitely part of the big military-industrial complex, uh, then you see they even talk about them, themselves, but they can't allow variables to creep in in this system that they're building up uh, and really working hard towards right now. They talk about the, the intercommunication of all things in many different terms and phrases for the same thing. Uh, we've heard about the world to be covered with these nanoparticles and so on, all communicating. We've heard the World Wildlife Fund talking about it, the UN um, talking about them as well, where the whole planet basically will be one big vast kind of net, if you, if you like, where everything's communicating data back in real time about every single thing. And that includes you as well. All your behavior patterns, according to IBM, are, are already completely fixed. They understand you uh, perfectly. They can predict everything you're going to do. Outside of some uh, aberrant thing coming in, uh, such as a mental illness, that would throw you off your usual pattern. And even then, they'll have projections due to your family histories, if that's even likely to happen. No kidding. In other words, you think of totalitarianism, as some uh, small, tiny little group somewhere trying to take over a world system. You don't really get it. No, the world has been taken over a long time ago. A long time ago. And they set up uh, from the banking systems alone. And they set up institutions. They set up their foundations to run and lobby governments and even put their own people into government. This was verified by Carl Quigley, who said that every leader... In the U.S., for instance, every president, regardless of the party, since for 60 years, and he wrote this book, Tragedy and Hope, in the 1960s, he said had been a member of this organization, this world organization. And they were comprised and set up by bankers. He went into the Council on Foreign Relations, how it ran the U.S., and its uh, parent body in Britain was called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. But they also set up uh, the banking system as we know it today, with the World Bank and the Bank for International Settlements and the International Monetary Fund. And they also encourage, you might say, by every means possible, they're doing the same thing with the, with the Islamic countries right now to get central banks, because then they get the central banks to communicate directly with their ideas to the, the, the Bank for International Settlements as they've been doing with all of us since the early 1900s. So one way or another, you either join them or they bomb you out of existence. Hard to imagine that because it doesn't appear in the papers, mainly because the owners of the newspapers are members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and all the top journalists certainly are too. 
all of your presidents are and your prime ministers are as well. And they have many branches, specialized little branches, little um, areas that deal with certain particular uh, problems. And uh, as I say, you have to look at all the divisions of the banking system, the world banking system, and the history of it to understand how uh, it all works together. Now, you know that the International Monetary Fund is like the heavy. They're, they play the part of the collecting agency. They're the heavies. And that, that was also set up by the same group, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Dash CFR, a long time ago. It actually set it up at the end of World War uh, One, supposedly with the BIS, to make sure that the reparations, meaning punishment money from Germany, would get paid uh, forever to the rest of the participating opponents that they had called the Allies in the West. But it never stopped there. It started to dictate in peacetime too to all the so-called peaceful countries uh, via their central banks. In other words, the central banks really had more of a, of a communication uh, and direct um, working relationship with the BIS and IMF than the, the, even the presidents, some of the presidents knew, or the lesser presidents, the ones behind them. On a lower level, I should say. Now, when the IMF goes in, it takes over your whole economy. It's a called balance the books. It's got an awful history, these heavies. You, again, it's like everything else under the United Nations umbrella. That was also set up by the way the UN was set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They were the guys who backed it and financed it into being. It was all their members that paid for their various buildings and so on even the setting up of the UN building in New York by the Rockefellers. But as I say, the IMF comes in and they slash your pension funds uh, that you're paid into. Uh, they'll make people work longer uh, after retirement too, until they drop, hoping you'll never claim any pension. That's already been mandated in some countries right now because of the latest uh, manufactured crash. Because they plundered the countries at least twice a century minimum. That's standard. And they also come in and open all your books and they start cutting back on your health care. They slash health care. They love uh, national health care systems uh, because uh, it comes under government. And they can do what they want with it. When it's private, it's, it's, they can't really get their, their fingers in there, you see, to slash health care. So they love governments to have a national health care system to get into and slash it big time, as they're doing in Britain and elsewhere. Well, Greece has been picked recently to be the poor man of Europe. They've chosen them to be the target. And a lesson to the rest of them, too, uh, not to let uh, this happen to you. It's a kind of threat. They love using uh, certain countries for to teach the rest of them to toe the line. And there's an article, for instance, um, about the Greeks uh, rioting right now. It says, rioting Greeks throw petrol bombs, that's gasoline bombs, at the police. And that was from the 1st of May, 2010. So the rioting against the police in Athens is anger about the financial reform boils over. Greek protesters have clashed with riot police in Athens as anger about financial reform boils over. It says uh, several hundred protesters waved flags and and wearing red bandanas confronted the police in the Greek capital on Saturday morning. Uh, Gasoline bombs were hurled at the police lines and armed police fired tear gas to dispel the crowds. That protesters set fire to rubbish cans, garbage bins, and two television broadcast vans as well. So that's what happens when 
uh, chaos ensues because everyone's your money is suddenly worth nothing, and, and in comes IMF, and they're running the government. And what the slogans say is "No to the IMF's junta." That's what they're saying. The protesters chanted, referring to the military dictatorship which ruled Greece from 67 to 74. And that's true. They put the IMF in then and put dictatorships in. His hands off our rights. The IMF and the EU Commission out. See, the EU, they know this now. The EU is not some big, wonderful thing that's going to help you out and give you benefits. It really is a, 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 it's really a gang that you've got to join or you don't get business put your way. They can cut all business and bypass business around your country. Everything's done, you see, in this real banking system by pure blackmail. And it's called free trade, if you join us. And everything else that comes with it in the fine print at the bottom, back after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Talking about the the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, and all the other big consortiums that run the, the world's financial system. And how are they going to countries like Greece and they teach them a lesson for the rest of the world to see and watch and learn from, and others be very, very afraid. And uh, they slash and burn, that's their tactic, slash and burn. And a country never really recovers from their presence, to be honest with you. And it's not meant to. But this article here is talking about uh, how the, the police have been shooting at the people, been shooting in, they've shot some, a boy already, probably more by now, and how the people are retaliating with gasoline bombs and so on. And the signs are all about to get the IMF and the EU, the, the, that's their parliament, the commission, out, this European parliament, this incredibly big remote parliament that's the super government over the whole of Europe, the new Soviet bloc, you might say, on behalf of the bankers. As the shops were closed, ships stayed undocked, and streets of the capital were unusually empty except for protesters marching towards parliament, meters away from the finance ministry, where the EU and the IMF officials have been meeting for days to agree to a new set of austerity measures. Now, you better understand it. We're hearing that word austerity in all the countries now. And, and this ties in with the plan as it is, because the plan is your post-consumer. This is what they really mean. We heard all that before the crash came along. We're going to change our whole way of consumption and stop uh, consuming so much. Well, that's, they're going to make sure that you're going to be austere, because now you'll pay everything. The banks won't suffer, because you'll be paying everything still through the banking system. But it'll be in the way of carbon taxes and multiple fees and so on to a thousand different government agencies, all to do with environment and property and all that kind of stuff. Just simply transferring the idea and getting you keep paying, all right, keep paying, but it won't be to buy things. It will be to pay for fees and the right to live and exist. It says, Union leaders are hopeful that the May Day protests will highlight Greek resistance to the wage cuts, tax rises and pension cuts uh, expected to be implemented. And that's what they always do, cut the wages, massive tax increases, uh, pension reductions, lots of layoffs in the in the so-called public service industry, the healthcare, etc., and uh, 
they've done this in other countries before, but they're really going to town on Greece to make a, a real example to the rest that this is your next if you don't uh, do it yourself, in other words. That's really what it's about. And there's also a lot of different groups in Greece. They definitely have communistic groups and anarchistic groups and so on uh, who are definitely uh, going to it there. And it's, it's unfortunate at the same time. But I understand everybody's mindset at the moment because they have a better understanding what's really happening with the IMF and who they really, really are. It's very important to know who they really are. <laughs> because we don't live in a world of local bankers at the top. These aren't local bankers. These are boys who are international money lenders who also set up the Milner Group that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Dash CFR. They set up the UN. They set up a world to be run in a socialistic fashion for the people by themselves who are the obvious fascists at the top. Carol Quigley was the official recognized historian for the Council on Foreign Relations who wrote the book uh, about these bankers and the the Council on Foreign Relations and how it was all set up by them to bring in a world global society ruled by this banking elite. They believed that the banking elite were the only ones with a true understanding of history, the trends in history, after all, they dealt with the fashion industry, um, the weapons industries, all the different loans, and they knew how loans were paid off, how they were defaulted on. They found ways to stop the defaults so that loans would still get paid off by the losers, and that still goes on today. All to do with economics and keeping themselves in power. They believe they're the only ones, and they're actually right, they're the only ones keeping an alternative version of history as opposed to the other versions of history, which was just about kings and queens and their conquests. They were keeping a a version of history to do with commerce and trading across the world. Long, long, long history. It was already a, a science, you might say. They were the guys who were doing marketing before they called it marketing in universities. And Carl Quigley, who wrote the book Tragedy and Hope and explained a lot of this, it wasn't too popular amongst the CFR for doing so. He said this in it, in the book, The power of the financial capitalism had a far-reaching plan. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Now that's quite ambitious, isn't it? He's reading it from the official records of the Council on Foreign Relations as the official historian of the Council on Foreign Relations. It says, This system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. So the, the first they set up central banking systems Remember, they also funded the communism too. Remember, one of the planks of communism was centralization of all government, but they also meant the banks as well, a central bank for the, for the country. It says the apex of the system was to be the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Back with more on this after these messages.
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Reading what Carl Quigley said a little bit in his book, uh, he, he disclosed quite a lot, actually. He did say that there was a group uh, running the world and had been doing it for, in secrecy for 60 years, and he wrote this book in the 60s. He also said it put every president of the U.S. into power, every politician across the main Western countries as well into power. And he goes on to talk about who set it up. He gives you the history of the, the Rhodes Boys, with, along with Rothschilds, who set up the Rhodes Scholarships to train guys for, uh, to become prime ministers and presidents and give them scholarships. And so they didn't limit it to the U.S. Uh, or Britain, but the whole British Commonwealth countries and at some other countries, even Germany, they had to put their own boys in too. And they put them all through the bureaucratic systems, but they also put them into their central banking systems. And he said here, again, for the hard of thinking, and there's a lot of people who have got uh, hard of thinking problems, I've noticed. It says here, the power of financial capitalism had a far-reaching plan, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control. A world system, you got that? It's very important. Of financial control in private hands that were able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. That's exactly what they're doing in Greece and some other countries right now and forcing the rest of the world into. The system must be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world, meaning they would not go through your congresses or your parliaments. They would never be mentioned. And it says, by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, which is a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations and still are. Each central bank sought to dominate its government. I'll say that again for the harder thinking. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians, meaning, you know, cooperative politicians, by subsequent rewards in the business world, like well, Tony Blair, for instance, and many others. Yeah. But you've got to read that book, Tragedy and Hope, and his other fantastic book that explains even more in some detail, and that's The Anglo-American Establishment. In Washington's blog, it's quite good, a good blog, this. There's a bit of a history of it in here as well, from April the 26, 2010. And it says, is America losing its imperial status? And global institutions such as the IMF, the G20, and the BIS, that's the Bank for International Settlements, are filling the void. When the International Monetary Fund or World Bank offers to lend money to a struggling third world country or emerging market, they demand austerity measures. As Wikipedia describes it, in economics, austerity is when a national government reduces its spending in order to pay back creditors to these big private banks, you see. Austerity is usually required when a government's fiscal deficit spending is felt to be unsustainable. 
development projects, welfare programs, and other social spending are common areas of spending for cuts. That's when they come in. The IMF comes in. They cut it all. In many countries, austerity measures have been associated with short-term standards of living, declines until economic conditions improved once fiscal balance was achieved, such as in the United Kingdom under Margaret Thatcher. Yep, they were in then. Canada under Jean Chrétien, uh, Jean Chrétien and Spain under Gonzalez. They've been in all these countries. Private banks or institutions like the International Monetary Fund may require that a country pursues an austerity policy if it wants to refinance loans that are about to come due. The government may be asked to stop issuing subsidies or to otherwise reduce public spending. When the IMF requires such a policy, the terms are known as the IMF conditionalities. Exonti points out in Wikipedia, austerity programs are frequently controversial as they impact the poorest segments of the population and often lead to a wider separation between the rich and the poor. In many countries, austerity programs are imposed on countries that were previously under dictatorial regimes, leading to criticism that populations are forced to repay the debts of their oppressors. What does this have to do with the first world? Since the IMF and the World Bank lend to third world countries, you may reasonably assume that this has nothing to do with first world countries like the US and the UK. But England's economy is in dire straits, and rumours have abounded that the UK might have to rely on a loan from the IMF. And as a former US Comptroller, General David Walker said, people seem to think the American government has money. The government doesn't have any money. Indeed, the IMF has already performed a complete audit of the whole U.S. financial system, something which they have only previously done to broke third world nations. Al Martin, former contributor to the Presidential Council of Economic Advisors and retired naval intelligence officer, observed at an April 2005 newsletter that the ratio of total U.S. debt to gross domestic product rose from 78% in 2000 to 308% in April 2005. The International Monetary Fund considers a nation-state with a total debt-to-GDP ratio of 200% or more to be a deconstructed third-world nation-state. And then go on to explain what deconstructed actually means. And it means is that a political regime in that country or a series of political regimes have, through a long period of fraud, Abuse, graft, corruption and mismanagement effectively collapsed the economy of that country. The IMF is, in fact, now saying the U.S. must live more austerely. As the Washington Post noted on Saturday, in the lingo of the International Monetary Fund, the future of the world hinges on rebalancing and consolidation, antiseptic words that would not seem to raise a fuss. But the translation is a bit ruder, something in the order of suck it up, the party's over. To keep the global economy on track, people in the United States and the rest of the world need to work longer before retiring. They hope you'll die, you see, before you collect any money. They want your money off you, but they don't want you to claim it back in pension funds. They want you to pay higher taxes, very much higher taxes, and expect less from government. And the cheap imports lining the shelves of mega chains such as Walmart and Target, they need to be more expensive. That's exactly what they're doing as they, uh, they inflate basically the cash. 
That's the meaning of a series of uh, policy papers and statements issued in recent days by IMF officials who have a long history of stabilizing economies. And that's a lie, too. They don't stabilize them. They plunder them. They they technically own them from ever after. That's really the the plan anyway, isn't it? And so solving global financial problems as they plot a course to keep the world economy growing (laughs) and reduce the risk of another Great Recession. Now, see, we're supposed to go into a Great Recession to bring out the new type of system of austerity, permanent austerity. That's what it's really all about. But you'll find, too, uh, that uh, the IMS has been criticized heavily. In the past, they've supported about 50 or 60 dictators. In fact, they've even brought the dictators in, and there's a whole list of them here as well. The thing is, too, that most of these countries had very little debt when they brought the dictators in, and they had a massive debt by the time uh, the dictators left, all backed by the IMF. Remember, too, what Carol Quigley said about the Council on Foreign Relations. He says, we don't care if we deal with communists and bring communists in or dictators or whoever they are, as long as they're along on board with our policies, they bring them in. And the IMF is just one branch of this whole, whole big conglomerate. It's quite fantastic. And... If we go into all the different stuff they're, they're into, it's amazing that the Guardian, the Guardian is, uh, the Guardian really is one of the so-called world lefties, which really works for the big conglomerates. They want to have the austere society. They want the greening projects because the bankers want the greening projects and the carbon taxes that are coming, uh, coming out of it. Massive new economy in carbon trading. And they actually put a, a fantastic write-up. And they say the IMF proposals get the big picture right. They're all for it. But then they're all for the whole greening agenda. They're all for the carbon taxes, the greening, and bring it back to nature and so on. Too many humans and yada, yada, yada. Literally a mouthpiece for them. A mouthpiece. But I'll put some of these links up on my site, Alan Watt, uh, as you see, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, at the end of the show. Uh, about the BIS too, the, the Bank for International Settlements, because it's a, there's a fantastic site here too uh, that's put a lot of the history of the, the, the Council of Foreign Relations up, the central banks uh, all working together with this BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, how they really do control the economies of all the worlds and all their trading uh, and, and their... their um, that their, their spending power, and they, they already have been doing this since really World War One. The other site goes through the Bilderberger Group too, and how they're all part of the same particular conglomerate, the Trilateral Commission, of course, and how they're also working in their specialized area to bring in uh, the, the trilateral agreement, including the NAFTA, completely combined uh, system of a United Americas that was supposed to happen now, in fact, this year. This would be the last year they signed the last part of it, supposedly, and they were totally integrated. We'll see how that works out. And they also go into the BIS. It says the BIS is the world's oldest international financial institution set up in, in 1930, it says here, but it's actually before that with the twin aim of coping with reparations and loans from and to a very unstable post-World War I Germany, and two, most importantly, to act as a forum for central bankers in the future. As such, it was the epitome of supranationality. 
able to circumvent all those orthodox ideals that had over the years become synonymous with the concept of the nation-state, such as love of country. So it was supranational, it was post-nations, it was global. And it says, of course, that uh, such circumvention of patriotism by any of his board members could lead them to be accused of treasonable offences. So they still played the game. It wasn't quite right to go global totally then to the public. In order to appreciate what followed, it's essential to offer a brief resume of the political economy uh, at the turn of the century, the 20th century. The Industrial Revolution, having fostered the rapid growth of a capitalist economy, inevitably gave birth to an ideal dogma exposing the socio-political discord inherent within that same system, which was based on the concept of one comparatively small group of people garnering profit from the wealth created by the labor of a much larger group. Thus, the Marxist born leading to the Bolshevik Revolution 1917, naturally what brought in the Bolsheviks, and by the way, that the, the same boys that launched international affairs helped fund that, the Bolshevik Revolution. The bankers funded it into existence to play the dialectic for a long time and standardize a big chunk of Europe under one system. And it's really the same system today. Same schooling system, same bureaucratic system, governmental system. That's what they've left behind them. It's the fastest way to do it. The USSR, now perceived by the industrial nations as representing the very antithesis of capitalism, once heads forced the enemy. The Cold War had begun its most blatant expression was the birth of fascism and the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution. So they, they created a dialectic, you see, and the bankers lent to all sides. And the intent was also, through a World War II, to bring in this new globalized system. They tried to get it uh, under the United Nations where, uh, right after World War II. They were confident the public were ready to accept a world government. But it wasn't to be because they had a lot of opposition, mainly in Britain and some parts of Europe, like France and so on. They didn't want world government just then. So they circumvented all that by creating up, creating these different banking systems that would force the world into their banking world system. The fastest way to get it through. But it says, by the late 1930s, the Bank for International Settlements had assumed an openly pro-Nazi bias, much of it disclosed by Charles Hingham in his book Trading with the Enemy. And, of course, the, even the Bushes' uh, uh, predecessors and the family were part of the, that. They were actually charged with trading with the enemy, the Walker side of the family. And years later, years later corroborated with the BBC Time Watch film Banking with Hitler, broadcast in the late 98. Two examples of such bias, there were many more, where the Bank for International Settlements, this is the guys who work with International Monetary Fund folks, had arranged transfers in the account of the German Reichbank of $378 million of what was in effect gold looted from the coffers of the invaded countries of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Holland and Belgium. And two, in the summer of 1942, plans for the projected American invasion of Algeria were leaked to the governor of the French National Bank, who immediately contacted his German colleagues in the Bank for International Settlements, SS Gruppenführer Baron Kurt von Schroeder of the Stein Bank of Cologne, by transferring 9 billion gold francs to Algiers via the BIS. This is your UN banking system, folks. The Germans and their French subsidiaries made a killing of $175 million in this dollar exchange scam. They were scamming all through World War II. These same banks are now in there in Greece today and in other countries with the other branch of them, the International Monetary Fund. But there's a long history to all of this 
most folk will never read the history and therefore they'll never really understand it. And they're quite content just going, ah, and ooh, at what's happening in the world today and twittering to each other. But I'll put this link up there as well. It gives you quite a good history, uh, quite a long history, in fact, of the workings of the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, and the central banks of the countries, all working in unison from World War I right through World War II, post-World War II to the present time. And they're the ones who are pushing uh, for the new post-consumerist uh, society, a world controlled by bankers. Remember, that's what Carl Quigley said. That's also what Mr. Rockefeller said in one of his major speeches. They mean what they say. Why not when you've got all the money in the world? You just make it out of thin air. And you lend it to other countries. And every, every nation... See, they love governments because every nation has you down as a citizen, which means you are now the guarantor of every loan. You, every one of you, and your children's children. The banking system is ancient. When you owe money, you're a slave. And your children will be slaves too until that's paid off. That's ancient. It's in the Old Testament, all that stuff. Never changed. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. That's the real world, folks. And I'll put this link in as well and let you read through it for those that have the patience and the, the ability to concentrate for more than 15 seconds. The rest you can go and tweet. Anyway, we also see another side of this too, and that's, of course, eugenics. That's all part of that. I mean, you look at the families of bankers. Bankers looked a long, long time ago in ancient times at royal families. And it's well known that in royal families, often they'd marry their sisters even to keep the power, the, the blue blood, as to say, the royal blood in the same family. Some of the pharaohs did the same thing. But not only that, some of the big boys in Britain were doing it too, such as Charles Darwin. And I'll read this article about his family lineage when I come back from this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix and just... Before I touch on Darwin, as I mentioned before, in ancient times, pharaohs and so on used to marry their sisters. But the ancient bankers saw this system and they thought, well, these guys are all dependent on us. And they owned the traders, they owned the trading routes, they owned commerce. And they thought, well, we'll do the same thing. They were very wealthy and they started marrying each other into intermarriage with the bankers. That's what the Rothschilds were all about too. And many more too from the same um, commercial classes. But not only them, too, a lot of them were in the scientific classes and also had little agendas. You'll notice that Charles Darwin's father, for instance, also wrote a book about uh, basically um, evolution. And you can you can actually get a hold of it yet. And Charles obviously was trained to, to push it even further through the Royal Society. They're the ones who really pushed him. He was a nobody one day and next day he's a star. You make anybody a star, no different in those days too. You just kept seeing a genius is going to expose something wonderful to the world, build it up for a few weeks, and then bring forth uh, the name Charles Darwin and his guaranteed success. It's much the same today, in fact. But anyway, this article is from the Sunday Times, May the 2nd, 2010. And it reiterates some of the stuff I've talked about Charles Darwin before, 
from Ian Taylor's book, uh, Charles, uh, Darwin and the New World Order. A very good book. Ian Taylor is a scientist, by the way, a very good scientist who first uh, enlightened me about this. And, uh, and the inbreeding that special families were doing in Britain and America and elsewhere. And it says here, the children of Charles Darwin, whose theories on evolution revolutionized science, may have been genetically blighted themselves because of generations of inbreeding in his own family. Researchers have linked a series of, mismar- of marriages between cousins from Darwin's family and that of Emma Wedgwood, the Wedgwood family, the Potters, who became his wife to the high levels of infertility and premature death that beset both their wider families as well as their children. Charles and Emma, who were also first cousins, had ten children, of whom three died early, while three were infertile. Studies of Darwin's ancestors show a history of intermarriage between the Darwins and the Wedgwoods that could have produced multiple genetic defects. Uh, Such marriages were so common in Darwin's family, according to research by James Moore, professor of science history at Open University, that both of Darwin's maternal grandparents and his mother were Wedgwoods. Actually, when Charles' wife died, who was a Darwin, he married his wife's sister. Yeah, no kidding. Moore said in Victorian times it was quite common for cousins. Well, it wasn't really, it was only in a certain small class. Uh, to, to marry, but the level of intermarriage in these families was unusual even at that. He found, he found that Darwin's maternal grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood, the founder of the Pottery Dynasty, had married his third cousin, Sarah, and had eight children. The couple's eldest daughter, Susanna Wedgwood, married Robert Darwin, her cousin. Charles uh, was their child. Josiah and Sarah's second eldest son, also Josiah, had nine children of four, whom four, including Emma, married first cousins. They all married the same families. Moore, who also is about to publish a research paper on Darwin, said the results of this unintended experiment, I wouldn't say it was unintended at all, it was definitely deliberate. In close cousin breeding are striking. 26 children were born from these first cousin marriages, yet 19 of the offspring did not reproduce. Five died prematurely, five were, in, were unmarried and considered mentally deficient, and nine married without issue, meaning they were infertile. So uh, they were already doing Plato's uh, guardian class stuff back in Darwin's day. Probably had done for a long, long time before that too. Lots of these families did. And I'm sure they were all rectified with their, their genetic manipulations today with science. From Hamish, myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.